Okay, so this week's Torah portion is a very, very difficult Torah portion to give a sufficient class on because this Torah portion is the foundation of at least three different mesechtes, three different entire tractics of Talmud. And the reason is because this week's Torah portion is very dedicated to civil law. So let's back up for a moment and let's talk about this. Civil law in Judaism is not just humanitarian. I'm, I'm going to add on the word just humanitarian. And I'm going to share with you, you know, I'm, I was more involved with Greater Miami Jewish Federation. A very dear friend of mine is the uh, president, um, uh, Mr. Jacob Solomon, God bless him. And we had this conversation once about the humanitarian causes that so many Jewish organizations, rightfully so, fundraise for and then throw themselves into. And I shared with him that in Judaism, there is no such thing as a humanitarian cause. And he asked me, what do you mean? And I shared with him that in Judaism, we look into Genesis and we see that God created man in the image of God. On top of that, if you want to talk more than just about image and likeness, God created from himself. In other words, when you and I want to build something, we make a shopping list, we go to Home Depot or wherever we're going to go, we buy the material, and then we get to work on the form. So we buy material, and really our job is then to reform the material from wood and nails to a bookcase, whatever it is. When God decided to create the world, where exactly did he go shopping? Which Home Depot did he go shopping with his shopping list of what we're going to need? We're going to need the four elements, or we're going to need this. No. We're actually taught that God created everything of himself. God is the material to everything. Now, this is true about all four categories, the inanimate, the plant, the animal, and the human being, both the physical, the spiritual, the terrestrial, the celestial, everything is of God because there existed nothing but God. Hence, the Kabbalistic and more Hasidic explains it, the formula, God is everything and everything is God. Based on this understanding is what I presented that in Judaism, there is no such thing as humanitarian cause and even more so, let's stretch it a little further. There's no save the planet cause. Because ultimately, everything is about divinity. Thou shall not murder because when thou murders, thou murders a piece of God. When thou just goes hunting for pleasure. Thou is killing pieces of God for no cause. I'm not here talking about vegetarian and other stuff. That, that's not what we're talking about here. What we are talking about here is that every 
every single every single cause that we talk about is ultimately all about God is everything and everything is God. And from that understanding, when we talk about anything, tsar balachayim, not to be cruel to any of God's creatures. When we talk about baltashchis, not to waste even a napkin if there is no cause to it. Whenever we talk about any single save the planet, save whatever it may be, from a Jewish perspective, it's always about God is everything and everything is God. So it's beyond just being a kind, compassionate person to all of God's creatures. It's about seeing God in everything. Now I want to take this a step further when we talk about specifically the human race. Not even talking about just the Jewish people now. We're talking about the entire human race. There is a teaching based on the verse, Shevisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid, I always see God before my eyes. And that's difficult. It's difficult. You're in your office, you're working, you're this, you're that, but you're seeing God. You see bills, you see products, you see work that has to be done, whatever it is. So there's an interesting teaching of how to be able to just practically fulfill this obligation. And the teaching says, train yourself that when you look on a person's face, the eyes represent the letter Yud, the ears represent the letter Hey, the nose represents the letter Vav, and the mouth represents the letter Hey. And if you can teach yourself to do this, not to get off track, but people who remember numbers do this all the time. They turn numbers or names, they turn letters, they create things out of it, and then they remember that image. So they do that with numbers and letters. Here we're talking about not just any letters, we're talking about the four letters that make up God's name. If we can train ourselves that when we look on the face of a human, and I was by the Fabrengen, where I heard the Rebbe of Blessed Memory say, that the teaching is not talking about just the spirituality of a Jew's face. We're talking about training yourself to see the smallness of the eyes as the yod, the broadness of the ear as a hey, the line of the nose as a vav, the lips as a hey. That applies to every human face. So from this teaching, we see that every single human face is actually carrying the image of God, so much so that through it, we can easily fulfill Shavisi Hashem Lenegdi Summit. Now, for right now, let's take it to the next step. When we talk about the laws of another Jew, when we talk about that every single Jew is an identical twin because our bodies are just leased vehicles that gets returned at the end of our physical lifetime. And our soul is who we really are. It's just for a mere 120 years that our soul is in a body. But the soul existed from the primordial and it will exist forever, eternal. It is a piece of God, a direct, untransformed piece of God. And because one piece of God is exactly identical to the other piece of God, because God being of essence is not complex, hence every single soul is an identical twin, to every other soul. Hence, the relationship between Jewish people is not just that of one human with another human, 
but literally of identical twins. And Hasidus takes it up a notch that ultimately every child comes from there where the sperm comes from, which according to Kabbalah comes from the deepest level of the mind. And that is why deaf parents or blind parents will have seeing children and children that are able to hear, even though the rule is you can't give what you don't have. However, because we're talking about that the son, the offspring, the daughter comes from the essence of the parent, the essence of the parent is never blind or deaf. It's only in the revelation of the faculties that something can go wrong. Hence, let's take it now as the metaphor that we are God's children. B'ni b'chayri Yisrael, the verse says, the prophet says, my son, the firstborn, Israel. Hence, we're talking about how every single Jew is identical twin, the way we exist in the mind of the father, primordial, before we even become separate souls that go into separate bodies. Now, why am I getting into all of this? Because I want to share that civil law, when you study the laws of Parshas Mishpatim, we are studying Torah. When we live the civil laws of the Torah, we are living a Jewish divine life. Not just are we being a mensch, we're being a God-fearing Jew. So therefore, when we talk about the Torah Pasha of Eile Mishpatim, these are the judgments where you shall place before them. And it says, and these, and means that it's adding on to what was said previously. And from here we learn out, because it says not these, but it says, and these are the judgments. And to what? What that means is just like the Ten Commandments came from Mount Sinai, so too the entire civil law was taught to Moses in those 40 days when he was on the mountain learning the Torah from God, every single drop of civil law comes from God. Which leads me to one more detail. And then I, I did commit to talk about reincarnation in this parsha, But I want to talk about one more detail. The Constitution is laws that has been is the byproduct of civilization. Let's take it just from the history of America. The American constitution, the laws that govern America, even though it's very Judeo-Christian and when you study law and, and the foundational law and the history, however, ultimately speaking, the constitution was based upon the trials and errors of monarchy and the tyranny that it led to. Hence, America's constitution is the byproduct of civilization, what they felt did not work and what they felt they need in order to be able to live in peace and harmony and in security. So that means the laws of the land is the outcome of human behavior. And therefore, you and I both know that there are many laws that are named after people who they were the original victims of a wrongdoing, and hence there became a movement to install a law, and hence that law is actually named after the original victim. So we clearly see that the laws of mankind is the byproduct of civilization. And that is why the Constitution is meant to be a living organism, because as humanity evolves, either to the good or to the challenge, the laws will have to evolve with the human race. Now, if I shared with you, Ve'ele told us, Ve'ele Hamishpotim, and these are the judgments, these are the civil law, and it comes from Mount Sinai, 
we're learning something very interesting here. Torah and mitzvahs are not the byproducts of human behavior. For the Torah and its mitzvahs existed before human behavior began. Which is why, again, I share, none of civil law is humanitarian in order to protect that we don't kill each other, we don't cheat each other, we don't hurt each other, everyone's rights are protected. No. It actually comes from Mount Sinai pre. The Torah says, I am the blueprint of the world, for God first wrote me and then looked into me and created the world. That is a direct quote from the Medrash Rabbah in the book of Genesis. So it's really important to understand that every part of Torah, even civil law, which seems to say that we don't need faith and divinity. Civil law, we actually are taught in the Talmud, someone who wants to become wise, he should turn to studying Nezikin, the laws of civil law. Why? Because other parts of the Talmud is directly, this is the verse, this is the law. We don't understand the logic behind purity and impurity, sacrifices, or those other sections don't really build on something I can wrap my head around. God said, end the story. But because civil law, it, it, it's so logical, the will of God has clothed itself into such human logic that we literally sharpen our brains by studying these parts of the Talmud. So seemingly, this whole set of civil law, when we connect it to Mount Sinai, becomes a question. At Mount Sinai, we all said we will do and we will hear. We will do before we will hear because it's based on obedience and not my logical appreciation. But one second, civil law, why is it built upon obedience? It's logical. Everything about this civil law is logic. There's whole processes of how we figure out if a guy's lying or not a lying, a migui. It's, it's beautiful when you study these tractates in the Talmud. But the answer is that civil law from the Jewish perspective is like every other part of the Torah. It is a bridge between heaven and earth, earth and heaven, God and humans, humans and God. Hence, the study of Elam Ishpatim takes on another whole dimension of sanctity. And hence, the previous Lubavitch Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak said, there are those that say, if only I would be able to appreciate and perform the illogical statutes called chukim with the same enjoyment and, and emotional connection that I perform the mishpatim, the rationale laws, civil law. The previous Rebbe said, and I say the opposite. If only I would be able to perform the mitzvahs, the civil law mitzvahs that make so much sense to me with the same sanctity and the same obedience that I perform those which I know clearly are nothing more than the will of God because human logic can't wrap itself around it. So now we're understanding an entire different holiness when we study the laws of Mishpatim. We also now can appreciate why directly after the most spiritual, unbelievable revelation of Judaism, Mount Sinai, why we go straight into civil law and not into the Chumash Vayikra, which talks about the holy temple, the sacrifices, holiness, holy of holies, the holy ark. No, because the ultimate bridge between mankind and God is when we perform civil law, not as humanitarian causes, but as divine life. And here let's, I'm, I'm building up to what we want to talk about with the reincarnation.
Let's take a simple example. Thou shall not murder. Really? And, and atheists don't believe that you shouldn't murder? We have to have it in the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> we have to have the obedience of I will do first and then I will try to understand. And the answer is yes. I know I'm going to bring up explosive topics here, but Judaism is Judaism. Abortion. Euthanasia. Is this part of thou shall not murder or not? And if it is part of thou shall not murder, which is in the Ten Commandments, do humans even get to vote on this? Now, don't get me wrong. I don't always understand this. I don't understand why a woman who's, God forbid, raped and becomes pregnant has to carry out that child, has to bring up that child. And for every, I, I know such a woman, and every single day of her life looking at the child is an absolute reminder of, of such a, 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 a horrific act. Wouldn't we say that there are times that abortion is the more compassionate, humane thing? And this is just one example. But when we understand that we're not talking about humanitarian causes, we're talking about divine causes. And in divinity, there is no mistake. So, so understand that I'm talking about a family I know where a Jewish woman is raped by, in this case, it was an African-American Gentile. She has that child. That child is a Jew, just like me, just like Moses, just like the Rebbe. And this child, she's a girl that's bringing up a beautiful Jewish family. Who is there to vote that this was a mistake that needs to be corrected? And hence, we now understand the entire laws of Pashish Mishpatim. There is no mistakes. Foresight, freedom of choice, hindsight, divine providence. No one has taken anything from you by their power, even if they wronged you. So Parsha's Mishpatim is such a beautiful foundation to the ultimate relationship between us and God, God and us. And with this being said, I just want to share with you, there are a lot of things in Tara Pashas Mishpotim that today wouldn't go over well. And we struggle with understanding them. We were all born post-emancipation of slavery. How can we talk over here about the laws of slavery? And yet that's the opening laws. So I will share with you just from a spiritual perspective, in Judaism, slavery is not like it is seen from the humanitarian perspective. From the humanitarian perspective, a slave is being robbed, not just of something, of freedom, but rather a human is being turned into property. There is nothing more horrific than that. And yet, surprised as you may be, Moses, the ultimate Jew, the one who God says speaks to me face to face and in, 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 in my entire house, he is trusted, whatever that means, in God's house. When it comes time for God to make a eulogy for Moses, he says just these words, Vayamos Moshe Eved Hashem. And Moses died the servant of God. Eved. Eved means a slave, not like a minister, a servant. No, Eved Hashem, a slave of God. Hence, ultimately speaking, in Judaism, slavery in its spiritual source. I'm not talking about now 
forcing other humans into slavery, God forbid, or anything like that. But slavery in its ultimate source goes back to what we were talking about a moment ago. Na'aseh before nishma. Obedience. Total transparency. Totally putting the I want, I need out of the way. Then we talk about laws of the guardianship, the different laws of guardian. You're paid. I mean, obviously, every single verse has so many laws about murder, about the hitting, about what happens if someone, God forbid, hits a parent, if someone curses a parent, if someone kidnaps someone. But all of these things, I'm just talking about topics now. We talk about financial damages. In Judaism, it's one of the most misquoted verses there is in the history of mankind, which has caused so much strife. An eye for an eye. An eye for an eye, it does not exist. The verse, an eye for an eye, is of monetary value. We don't cut off someone's hand because they cut off someone else's hand. And we don't poke out someone's eye because they poked out someone else's eye. And even though some of us would say, no, but that's justice. Not in Judaism. Remember, in Judaism, foresight, freedom of choice, hindsight, divine providence. No one harmed another person by their own power. So while we must always make amends and do restitution, we don't poke out a guy's eye because he poked out the other person's eye because poking out the, the, the criminal's eye is not going to bring any restitution to the victim's eye. Now, we talk about property damaging property. We talk about the guardianship. With what the levels of responsibility do you have? If someone owes, uh, if someone pays you to guard, if someone asks you a favor to guard, if you borrow something, so his thing is under your, your guardianship. All these different laws. We talk about, by the way, throughout the, the, the Jewish um, world today, this Shabbat, somewhere in this week or Saturday night, there's going to be a fundraiser for a free loan society because in this week's Torah portion it tells us the commandment to go ahead and to give loans and a Jew is not allowed to take interest from another Jew so much so that a person is not allowed to pay interest a person is not allowed to take interest so it's not like well you signed a contract literally if someone made a mistake and signed a contract to another Jew that I am taking a loan and I am going to pay interest. He's not allowed to pay interest because long before he signed that contract, he already signed the contract at Mount Sinai to accept God's commandments and we're not allowed to take nor pay interest. Okay, then we talk about the holidays and then we go a little bit into more details of what took place at Mount Sinai, the spirituality of it all. Okay. That's a brief synopsis of the Torah portion. And again, I just wanted to spend more time on changing the frame of mind of civil law in the Torah. I also want to share with you that this year is a leap year. And why am I sharing that with you? Because on this Shabbat, we're going to bless the new month. And we're going into the month of other one. So because the lunar calendar is usually, give or take 300, the, the lunar cycle is 354 days, 12 hours, and pika. And the solar orbit is 365 days. And here it is an argument of how many hours. So let's just say 365 and 354. Now, seemingly, that's not a problem. What do we care about the solar orbit? If God told Moses in Egypt that the Jewish calendar is based on the lunar orbit, then, then what difference does it make? I'll tell you what difference it makes. The Jewish holidays are defined by the day of the calendar of the lunar orbit. The problem with that is that we also refer to each and every one of the holidays as agricultural times, the time of harvest, the time of gathering. Now, the agricultural cycle works on the solar orbit, not the lunar orbit. Now, if you keep on having the Jewish year be 11 days less than the solar 
the Gregorian calendar, the solar orbit, before long, Pesach is not going to be in spring, it's going to be in the summer, it's going to be in fall, it's going to be in the winter. And then the verse, which calls it Chag Aviv, won't be applicable. Hence, we have a rectification between the two orbits because out of a 19-year cycle, you have seven leap years. Leap year means you add on 30 years, 30 days. Now, if you keep on adding on 30 days, do the mathematics. If you have 11 days, three years, there's a difference between the lunar and the solar at 33 days. So you understand how a leap year will keep on resetting that the lunar orbit will be aligned with the solar orbit in the sense that when you add on an Adar, so when it comes to the time of Nisan, Passover, will be in the appropriate spring agricultural time. Okay. So pretty much we covered the, the Torah portion. We covered why this Shabbat is the Shabbat Mevarachim of Rosh Chodesh Adar, and that this is a Adar 1, and stay tuned because we're going to have an Adar 2. Just that you know, Purim is in the second Adar, and you can email me separately. My mother, may she live and be well, is with us here. And I just, as you know, Ma, uh, your mother's yard site is in the second day of Adar. And what happens on a leap here? So uh, people, you can, uh, you can text me if you have these questions. If you have a child who's having a bar mitzvah, what month do you do it in? He was born in a regular year and it's now a leap year. Or if you have any birthday, when do you celebrate it? If, if your mother or father, like in my case, my mother's mother passed away. So if it's in a regular year, when do you celebrate the yard site, commemorate the yard site in a, and also celebrate the yard site in a, in a leap year? We'll talk about that if you want, just email me. Um, but I want to move now to reincarnation. So number one, many people are very surprised that Judaism believes in reincarnation. Yes, we do. There's actually very famous teachings about reincarnation. There's a teaching that Moses was the reincarnation of Abel, the son of Adam. There's many different stories. When we say in the Haggadah that peace, and I am as, and as 70 years old, why did he pick 70 years old? He was only 18 years old. So Kabbalah helps us out. He was the reincarnation of Samuel the prophet. Samuel the prophet died at the age of 52. 52 plus 18 is 70. And this goes on and on. Reincarnation is all over the place. However, you'll see that I pointed out to you reincarnation of very holy people. Samuel the prophet and Rabbi Elizabeth Azariah, Moses. So obviously, reincarnation is not just what many of us were taught, that it's a punishment. You have to come back because you didn't do it right the first time. So I'm going to share with you some interesting teachings, some I do understand, some I don't understand. For example, the Ari HaKadosh, Rabbi Isaac Luria, Man lived about 500 and something years ago in Svas. He lived in the times of Rabbi Yosef Cairo. He, uh, at the, he died at the age of 36. And in those short years, he, he completely restructured Kabbalah. Entire Chabad's Hasidis, I shouldn't say entire, but the, definitely the Siddur of Chabad. If you read the cover page, the first Lubavitch Rebbe said that it's built upon the Nusach, the uh, liturgy of the Ari. And he writes, he actually didn't write, he taught and the students wrote, but we refer to as the writings of Darizal Kisve, Arizal, even though he didn't write anything. His primary, his primary person who wrote and is most trusted is his student, Rab Chaim Vital. But there is a book. And in that book of the teachings of Darizal, he talks about reincarnation. And he says some stuff there that's really interesting. He says, for example, women are never forced to reincarnate. Every woman that comes back in this world is because she selflessly chooses 
to come back because the other half of her soul, the male, has to come back. So she comes back that he won't be alone and he'll be able to have offspring. Interesting. I don't understand exactly why the man has to come back and the woman doesn't have to come back. I have a, an understanding of it, a thought, but I don't know for sure. So let's get into what reincarnation is and how is it connected to this Torah portion. So the Alter Rebbe quotes in the teachings of Hasidus that every single soul being created in the image of God, the male body has 248 organs, 365 sinews. The woman's body obviously has more than that. Now the male body has that because going back to the verse, let us create mankind in our image and likeness. And what does image and likeness mean? The Torah in having 248 thou shall do's and 365 thou shall not do's, it's actually a reflection and it's called in Zohar the 248 limbs, organs of God. A it actually used the word king. A vod in the Malka. What does that mean? God has no form and shape. But what's important to us is that when the Torah impartes chukas, when it talks about the red heifer, it says, Zot chukata Torah, this is the statutes of the Torah. And over there it says that the man, it's, it doesn't say it in the simple verse, but we learn out over here that the human and the Torah are a reflection one of another. And therefore, because there are 248 mitzvot thou shall do and 365 thou shall not do, therefore, the evolution of that is that the human being has 248 organs, 365 sinews. Now, why is this important to us when we're talking about reincarnation? Because based on this, Hasidus says that the soul's organs have to be connected and each one, it comes down into this world to fulfill each mitzvah. Hence, every soul has to continuously keep on coming back until it fulfills every mitzvah and every one of the prohibitions in order that there should be that connection between the organs and limbs of the Torah, which reflect the organs and the, and the sinews of the king, which also is the reflection of the, the organs and the sinews of the soul, which is what causes the evolution of the organs and the sinews of the physical body. So according to the Arizal, the soul was never meant to come into this world only once. Rather, every soul, the original plan was to have to come back more than once, not because of a punishment, not because it was supposed to do everything in one lifetime and it didn't, so we have to send it back, but rather the original journey of the soul was meant to be here more than once. Now, parenthetically speaking, this is totally my own thought, but when I try to understand what I shared with you about the women not having to do the reincarnation and the man, yes, you will recall that the women are not obligated to do all the 248 thou shall do's, right? The woman doesn't have to put on tefillin, the woman doesn't have to wear tzitzit, so forth and so on. Any commandment of thou shall do that is in a time constraint, you have to do it now. For example, tefillin and, and, and the tzitzit have to be done by day and not by night. So women are not obligated. Maybe that's why they don't have to, they don't have to do reincarnation. But be it as it may, every single soul, its job is to come back. The Alter Rebbe says, for the example, like in one lifetime, you can be a Kohen so that you can do the Kohen mitzvahs. And in one lifetime, you can be a Levi. And in one lifetime, you can be an Israelite because you have to do all the Torah mitzvahs. The only exception to the rule is a king. When a king does a mitzvah, because the rule is 
that the heart of the king is the heart of the nation. So the king does the mitzvah for everyone in that nation. It's as if everyone in that nation did that mitzvah. Other than that, the original plan was to come again and again in different, different levels, manifestations, in order to be able to do the entire Torah mitzvot. And that's why you'll find that Samuel the prophet comes back as Rabbi Elizabeth Nazaria, and so forth and so on. However, the Rizal then says something which is really awesome. He says that the secret of reincarnation is actually in our Torah portion. Now, I shared with you that our Torah portion is the bulk of civil law in the Torah. What does that have to do with reincarnation? Now, to understand this, I'm going to first tell you a law that has to do in the laws of Yom Kippur. Then I'm going to tell you a story the Medrash says that happened between Moses and God. And then we'll understand. In the laws of Yom Kippur, it says that you have to do teshuva. We have to do repentance. And then there's an interesting law. Something that happened between man and mankind, you cannot do teshuva with God, first you have to make amends with the human. So there's two things that happens here. One, in doing this action, I transgress the will of God. Remember, it's, it's divine, not just humanitarian. But on the other hand, I also cause pain to someone by my ill choice. Now, even though I can't take back to yesterday, However, if I apologize today, I'll stop continuing the pain because the person can have closure. Hence, I can't make right with God and say, okay, that's it. I made a mistake. I'm done. I, I did teshuvah. No. I have to stop the wrong that I did from continuously hurting. So I have to go to that other human being, apologize, make amends, whatever it may be. Therefore, the law says, before Yom Kippur, make sure that you make amends and apologize to your fellow human being. And hence, as you know, that before Yom Kippur, by the way, some people do it before Rosh Hashanah. It's not about Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a whole different bowl of wax. It's about Yom Kippur. Before Yom Kippur, you ask forgiveness to people. And then on Yom Kippur, you turn to God. And you do teshuva for that hurting the other person on the level where it was a transgression against God's will, a divine thing. So we now know that the rectification of what we do wrong to another human being has to happen between the two human beings. It can't happen in purgatory. It can't happen in the afterlife. It has to happen between the two physical human beings. Number one. Number two, story time. So the Medrash tells us that Moses, God showed him a scenario, a scenario that was going to happen. And in that scenario, he sees that there is a rich man traveling. And on the way, he stops by a brook to go ahead and refresh himself, to take a drink, and then goes on his way. However, what he didn't realize was as he leaned over to wash his face, his money pocket, that little sack, fell out. He didn't realize he left. Then Moses sees a poor man come along and he sees a poor man find a sack and he's like, thank you, God. Now I can buy food for my kids. I can marry off my daughters. And he takes the sack and goes. And then Moses sees a rabbi. That's what it says. He saw a rabbi come along, doesn't know about anything. No, he doesn't know that the sack was lost. He doesn't know the sack was found. He washes his face. He sits down by a tree and to rest in the shade. And all of a sudden, the rich man comes back. He sees the rabbi there. He's looking, he's looking, he's looking. And he starts screaming at the rabbi, give me back my money, give me back my money. And the rabbi says, I don't have your money. I don't know what you're talking about. I just got here. Don't, don't tell me you just got here. I mean, how many people cross here? I was here. My money fell out here. And now you're here. And my money's not here. One plus one equals two. You obviously have my money. Give it back. The rabbi says, I don't have your money. The rich man starts beating up the rabbi. And then Moses turns to God and says, whoa, you're just. 
Your ways are just. Why would you let this happen? And our sages tell us that God told Moses that's because you only saw the second half of the story. Now let me show you the first half of the story. These three people were in this world together in a different lifetime. They lived in the same village and they knew each other. The rich man was the rich man, the poor man was the poor man, and the rabbi was the rabbi. And the rich man had a business deal. He hired the poor guy and he refused to pay him. And the poor guy took the rich guy to the rabbi for a din Torah, a Jewish court case. And the rabbi knew that the poor man was right, but he was too afraid of the rich guy. And he ruled in the rich guy's favor. And then God tells Moses, and because they had freedom of choice, I had to let them do that. And now I had to send them all back down into this world to make right on what they did wrong. The money that the rich man lost was the exact amount that he owed the poor man in the previous lifetime. The poor man got his money and the rich man did end up paying him. And the rabbi received what he justly deserved for the corruption of law because he was too afraid to stand up to the rich person. Now we understand what that Rizal is teaching us. When we talk about souls coming down to rectify wrongdoings, the mitzvot between man and God, they can rectify on a spiritual level. They can rectify between them and God. However, parashat mishpatim, the laws between man and man cannot be handled between man and God. And they cannot be cleansed in purgatory. But rather, it has to happen here in the physical world. The physical wrongdoing has to be amended. Now, I heard this at a very young age. You know, when we're young, we're pure, we're sincere. We don't try to justify. We don't try to rationalize. It is what it is. And the story of Moses, it was exactly what it was. It wasn't a metaphor and a this and a that. You know, we get older, we start, nah, it doesn't really mean this. It's a this. No. When you're a kid, you know the truth is truth. And this story so affected me. I remember as a kid once, it was actually a story about a quarter. And I had the opportunity, shall we say, to keep a quarter that didn't belong to me. And I remember as a kid thinking to myself, I am not coming back to this world because of a quarter. <laughs> and I gave back the quarter. Why am I telling you this personal story? Because I don't want you to think that this is a class built on Hasidic, mystical, <laughs> celestial. It's factual. God will not make right between him and me that which I have done wrong to another person. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't full-heartedly forgive the other person, even though he didn't ask for it. And even though there's a saying that you can't give forgiveness until it's asked for, I don't know if I agree with that. I will share with you that not forgiving the other person in your heart, in your mind, is ultimately what we say in addiction recovery it's drinking the poison, waiting for the other person to die. Because that person who did you wrong, especially for dealing with narcissism, <laughs> has not been thinking about you or what he did wrong. And somewhere along the line, he actually turned himself into the victim and he was the one or she was the one. But here's a fact. Not forgiving means that it's still hurting. If it's still hurting, then we, for our own sake, need to forgive. 
Now, easier said than done. And there are certain things that I literally have prayed for the other person. That's what I was taught to do. Pray for the other person who's hurt you. Forgive. Keep on forgiving. I can't say that I have successfully done that. But I am very conscious that ultimately speaking, by not forgiving him in this world, now in this lifetime, I'm hurting. That other person is, he's on to someone else. Number one. Number two, the poor person had to also come back to this world to get the money. So ultimately speaking, by not forgiving the other person, we're also forcing upon ourselves another reincarnation. So there's a lot to learn out from this teaching. So to sum it up, part of reincarnation is just a journey. Rabbi Isaac Luria, who lived 500 years ago, testified that in his generation, there was already no new souls that were here for the first time. 350 years ago, the Baal Shem Tov announced on the day that the Alter Rebbe was born, that today a new soul descended with a new mission, which was a big thing he made out of it. So reincarnation is in the original formula of the world, of a soul's journey. But then on the other hand, there's also the reincarnation that we subject ourselves to, which is not part of the original journey, which is about tikkun, the tikkun that we do between one and another. So let me conclude by just saying, so many of us erroneously believe that the most important thing is to be right with God. This week's Torah portion tells us, A, you can't be right with God unless you're right with another human being. And B, in its own right, being right with another human being is very important. People, thank you. I'm going to open up the lines for anyone that wants to share.